So, Matt, you're uh, you're looking very dapper. We're recording in person for once. I know. Yeah, this, this is the first episode we've recorded in person, right? Yeah. Um, I'm 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 moist, but not from your presence. Sadly, from the rain. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it didn't. <laughs> I didn't pick the best day to get you to come into studio, but you know, I walked outside. You said I'm here, and I rang. He was like, "Where are you?" I'm at the Sainsbury's across the road, sitting in a bus shelter, eating a Kit Kat. Yeah, vegan, ki- vegan Kit Kats. Who knew? Who knew yeah. there were vegan Kit Kats now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very nice. Um, it's 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 weird being here in person. I feel like um, I feel like I'm like you're Joe Rogan, and I'm like. I don't know what Jordan Peterson or something. <laughs> I was going to say you're Jamie that pulls up. Also. <laughs> Matt, can you pull that up? Can you pull that up, Matt? Or 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 um, you're Howard Stern and I'm the other one. Who's the other one? I'm I'm not old enough to have listened to Howard Stern, Matt. <laughs> you called me Mr. Ben earlier on, and I feel like that's like a reference from back when they had gollywogs on the jam. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, political correctness gone mad. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Tattooing's been ruined because of political correctness gone mad. Can't you can't can't say anything these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we won't mention we're, any tattooists in particular. Are we going to be that kind of? Are we, we going to um, be that kind of podcast now, Thomas? We're gonna we're gonna like we're gonna just just seek the clicks. We're gonna get cancelled. No. no, we get enough. Go on a go on a cancelled tour. All of the lovely messages we've gotten from listeners about all the great work we're doing down the drain because we want to. Well, you could go down the Jordan Peterson route because you are now an academic who is also a content creator. Yeah, but my my twelve rules for life, like most of them, would be about like, moisturizing. Like, well, like, yeah, nine of them would be have a nap, and then the other three would be about moisturizing. Yeah, <laughs> run us through your skincare routine for any. So, for anyone who has never met Matt or never seen him, Matt is in his forties and has incredible skin. So well, you know what I was um I was I got um ID'd obviously earlier on on the automatic checkouts at Sainsbury's for buying Monster. Like if you buy um energy drinks, you get you get ID checked. And uh, the guy has come over, and rather than just pressing a button to say this guy is over the age of you know sixteen to buy a mon- Monster energy drink, there's a little box where the person has to put in a number of how old they think you look. And he put in twenty one, which is absurd because I definitely do not look twenty one. <laughs> I mean, but definitely, definitely take that as a compliment. Well, I, I had, I ha- have very terrible skin. Um, you were saying, there's some billionaire who wants to be like have the skin of when he was in his twenties. I do not want the skin of when I was in my twenties because I had very bad acne and disgusting greasy skin. So, um, I am a, I am a devotee. I have to say, uh, please sponsor the show uh, of Drunk Elephant. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I tend to use like Drunk Elephant cleanser. Um. I the eye cr- their eye cream, which is like a game changer because I have mm-hmm. very I have heavy lids. Okay, uh, if you do, <laughs> if you're welcome. <laughs> um, and yeah, a little bit of moisturizer. Nice. Yeah, or, or, or the ordinary moisturizer because they're you know the the John Elephant stuff's really expensive. So a mm-hmm. little bit of ordinary. Yeah, and it's very nice. Like it's very yeah. soft. And uh, you're very welcome to beneath the skin. We're beneath, talk- beneath the skin. The literally, history of moisturising. Literally going beneath the skin, talking about Matt's skincare well, routine. You know, there, there's that qu- um, quote that I use in my book from uh, that Elizabeth Arden campaign from uh, 1933, where they advertised like moisturiser, basically, mm. like 100 years ago, basically saying, um, like. Like they they say, like um, the world belongs to the sensitives. Um, those um, if it wasn't for those those people who moisturised, we'd still be tattooing our skins and calling it painting, right? So having soft skin and not having tattoos is what separates us from the barbarians 
of yeah. our of our past, Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you're once again very welcome to the show that's about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. And one person who definitely did not have good skin is one Francisco Franco. <laughs> a, 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 a great transition today. We, that, was, that was your worst intro handbrake yet. I mean, look, you, I got to figure it out somehow. You know, do you know yeah. what? Do you know, you know what's very good for I'm your skin? I'm going to be the first one to say it. Dunking on Franco's skincare regime. That's the only bad thing to say about the guy. <laughs> but <laughs> we are very blessed today to have an incredible guest to talk about something that probably not a lot of people know about. We're talking about tattooing in Spain. And Matt, do you want to introduce our wonderful guest? Yeah, well, I mean, n- nobody knows about it, really. Um, and uh, this is why I'm really delighted that uh, our guest is here. So, um I'm pleased to welcome. We are pleased to welcome Julia Amigo, who um, has uh, is doing a PhD in uh, Granada, which we'll talk about. Um, and she contacted me uh, a couple of years ago and said, "Hey, I want to come come to the UK for a bit and and study in the UK as well." So she's been um, with me at the University of Essex for um, this academic year, which has been really good. Um, and I've learned so much. Um, I get a lot of emails from people who want to do. Uh, work with me and and PhD students um, and lots of them are are, are not very well formulated in terms of approaches. Julia's was amazing because she was just like, hey, I'm I'm working at the moment on the history of women and tattooing in Spain. Um, Do you know anything about it? And quite often when people ask me, do you know anything about that? I have to say, yeah, I know quite a lot. They said I didn't know anything about it at all, which proves to me it's a good project. So um, yeah, like I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tom, for having me. I'm really happy. I'm a fan, um, so I'm I'm really glad. So yeah, this when we we were talking about this when we were at the Jesse Knight exhibition or well the collection, and I was asking you questions about it because it's honestly I think in terms of like tattoo history, everyone kind of like thinks about um, tattooing in the UK, in America, in Asia, in Japan, obviously in particular, and we forget that there is like a tattooing tradition or there's at least a tattoo history even if there is an absence of tattooing in different parts of the world places like spain places like france germany ireland which we will talk about at some stage uh, obviously me being irish but i think it's really interesting because obviously spain's history is quite unique in terms of like europe so julia do you want to give us kind of a crash course uh introduction into tattooing in spain yeah sure um so i think uh, when you were talking about uh, France or Germany, I think those countries are much more documented in terms of uh, tattoo history. Whereas yeah, Germany, for sure. Yeah. Whereas uh, Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain, Greece, I think are much more unknown, um, even though we have a tradition, right? Um, in the case of Spain, um, our particular political history shaped uh, what we know about tattooing, especially because from uh, 1939 till 1975, we were under a dictatorship. And of course, uh, subcultures were like not present, you know, or they were uh, highly repressed, uh, which means that, of course, any body practice that was out of the norm was uh, prosecuted. Um, So even if we had, you know, like soldiers, uh, military people um, or people in prisons getting tattooed, it's not very well documented. So if you go looking for sources, um, I I was like, I I really struggled, you know, it's really hard to find any text or or even photographs. Uh, But then after 1975, you know, 
we start uh, seeing uh, how the first tattoo shops, you know, on the streets of cities uh, start opening. And that's when uh, tattoo uh, culture really uh, launches off, you know, not before that time, I would, I would say. So, that, I mean, that you and I talked about this a lot. There's, there's, there's not really much evidence at all of a professional practice even before the 1930s in Spain, right? Yeah, not not much. And even though, you know, our history or our contact with tattooing goes like way back, because um, even in 1632, right, this guy, uh, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, uh, when he got to Mex what is Mexico now, right, he was a, a conqueror, uh, he wrote this book on the history of uh, the New Spain, his, he called it, and um, he was describing how native people were tattooed. He even used a term uh, which was taracear um, that referred to like engraving uh, the skin. Then we stopped uh, using that term and we adopted uh, tattooing, tatuaje, uh, from the French probably. Um, so yeah, there's like a huge gap where people were probably getting tattooed because for example, uh, the royal family were getting tattooed even uh, like at the beginning of uh, last century. And there are pictures, you know, of their tattoos, but they were getting them, of course, in foreign countries, not not yeah, in, is in it King, Spain. King Alfonso, is that right? And yes. He, he's one of these like tattooed crowned heads of Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, around the same time as Edward VII or George V or Tsar Nicholas II. Like that kind of trend for aristocratic tattooing, particularly in, in the context of Japan, like reached Spain yeah, Spanish royal family yeah. and both his sons, um, Jaime and Juan, got tattooed by George Burkett, for example. Yeah. Um, so there was presence of tattooing, right? But it was mainly uh, either uh, for very rich people that could afford to travel or for just uh, prisoners and um, so-called uh, criminals. So what happens then to tattooing during the during the period when Franco's in power. So he, he comes to power, as you said, in 1939. Mm -hmm. And so is is tattooing banned? Like, is tattooing suppressed in the Spanish military or the Spanish Navy? Like, what's, what's happening to tattooing in the 30s in Spain? It wasn't really banned, but uh, even before then, uh, we didn't have any tattoo shops, right, on the streets. So um, I know that, for, for that time, right, like 1920s, even 1910s, uh, newspapers were starting to, you know, get an interest in tattooing. So they were describing how, for example, English people were getting tattooed a lot. There were lots of articles with photographs and people were, I think, starting to get interested. There was this party, for example, in Madrid in 1912 called uh, La Fiesta del Tatuaje, where, um, like, just artists would paint uh, with with painting, right? It wasn't tattooing, but it was like a like a pretend like body painting, like, thing, yeah. like body painting on cabaret uh, women, and that was, I think, a first sign of people getting interest, right, in in tattooing and tattoo culture. But of course, after uh, Franco got into power, um, any diversity actually was repressed. I don't think tattooing was banned. I couldn't find any information on it being banned. But if you think about, for example, how women who would live alone couldn't 
have people in their houses or they couldn't, I don't know, smoke. That gives you an idea of how repression was working. It was very intense. So any anything that was underground, subcultural, would just go prosecuted. Yeah, and, and Spain, um, I guess it's a history that we don't get taught really at all in the UK, um, disgustingly and shockingly, I suppose. But um, it's really interesting to me how quickly, you know, Germany, France, um, Italy and Spain, how they go from in the 20s, post-World War One, these very bohemian, interconnected kind of European cultural communities. You know, as you, I think that 1912 example you're talking about is very reflective of what's happening in Paris and what's happening in London and what's happening in various bits of Germany as well. Um, but how quickly the particular context in, in Spain and, and, and Germany transform the social landscape, particularly for, yeah, for kind of deviance and particularly for kind of anyone that's not, not considered within the kind of acceptable range of um, norm, you know, quite, quite normal human behaviour as far as the fascists are concerned, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, after the 60s, even after the 50s, I would say Spain started opening to the world a little bit more. Um, but I think by 1975, people were eager to just explore. For example, punk, we only started getting, you know, um, like a punk scene, a big one, a known one after the death of uh, Franco. Yeah. So it was like many years after you started it, for example, here. Yeah. So I think people were just eager. And on Shout out Las Vulpes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I was, but I was going to ask, because obviously we've done an episode about tattooing and the alt-right and fascism and obviously for anyone who isn't very familiar with the topic like fascism is essentially a project of in terms of like culture is of social control eliminating kind of the creases in the homogeneity of a culture and i just want to ask obviously you talked about like subculture didn't really exist what was was there an underground scene at the time was there stuff even you know that wasn't as visible internationally what was the scene underground scene like what did people have tattoos what what was going on there was an, an underground scene for sure it's not like well documented but mainly because it was better for you not to document anything yeah. uh, and then i think tattooing is such a visible thing that maybe you know things were happening uh and we just didn't see them happening right and for example, in the 50s, um, there's um, a couple of tattooers uh, from Europe that were coming to Barcelona to tattoo, like Ron Akers uh, from here and then Albert Cornelissen from Germany. They were, of course, tattooing mainly military people, but I'm sure probably, you know, they would tattoo also just regular people who were interested in tattooing. I'm just uh, wondering if there's any any place where we could find that information i guess we should like talk to the families or keep you know, looking just, i mean i think yeah like this is the the the, the ron acker's story so ron acker's you know um bought a van didn't he and and drove drove all over europe he even talks in his little book about you know rolling a dice or flipping a coin or something going should we go to spain or should we go to italy or whatever in the 50s and 60s but i think the fact that Ackers and Cornelison, who's a part of that group too, like, again, it just shows, like, weirdly, what we were saying a minute ago, like, the UK, German, American, that nexus that's coming through, like, the Bristol Tattoo Club uh, and through the London Tattoo sort of offshoot of the Bristol Tattoo Club with Jesse and Cash Cooper and, like, that's that British scene that's, like, at the heart of 
so much of what's happening. It's so funny to me that even in this very dark, strange, complicated moment of Spanish tattoo history, you've got like Ronnie, <laughs> Ronnie Ackers, you know, who was one of the first people in the UK to be a correspondent of Ed Hardy's, um, who was very friendly and a bit of a rival of Jesse's, who was working right the way up and, you know, going to Japan with like Lau Hardy in the 70s and 80s. Like, it's really interesting how these single figures seem to pop up all over the place because the numbers of people that are doing tattooing are so small. Like, I mean, what, what, what's your sense of like, yeah, I mean, you, you talked a bit about it, but, but how, how those networks begin to develop in the 50s and 60s? Mm. I, I don't know much about those years because, as I said, it's really hard to find uh, sources, right? But I know that uh, the first uh, guy to open a tattoo shop in Spain, um, Mao Pérez, who opened his shop in the south in uh, 1981, along with this photographer, uh, who's uh, very well known in Spain, uh, García Alix, um, he learned how to tattoo with Lou in Switzerland. <laughs> so again, the connections are there. Yeah. I think it's much much easier to look at them and understand the conversation after Franco's death. Lou, Lou who'd also, Lou, Lou, Philip, Philip Lou, who's um, dad, Felix Lou, had learned to tattoo from, from Jock in Piccadilly. Again, like part <laughs> of that mad scene. Um, so yeah, like, so what happens in, so what happens in the seventies? Like the, the thing that you said to me that blew me away the other day was such a good point. Like we, I, I, I spend my life, you know, trying to kind of dispel this idea that there was a tattoo renaissance. We hear this a lot in academic literature that somehow tattooing had gone away. And then, you know, Ed Hardy and Cliff Raven and art school trained tattooers in the 70s, uh, you know, rebirth tattooing and turned tattooing into this art form again. Um, that's something that you'll find in a lot of a lot of writing. I found references to the renaissance of tattooing right back to the 50s, at least. And I think it's a kind of nonsense term because tattooing never really goes away. Um, but as you pointed out to me the other day, in in a honestly a thought that blew my mind, like in Spain the renaissance of tattooing is true because there is no tattooing, and then all of a sudden the first wave of tattooing really is this post Ed Hardy, post art school, you know, kind of wave, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I went to your office that day and I asked you about artification and uh, renaissance and i was like i've always been very critic or skeptic about these two topics and then we discussed a little about it and then i was like wait but actually renaissance really applies to to spain because it is true that it's after it's only after 1975 that tattoo culture really starts to develop and people actually start seeing tattooed bodies because it's also true that people i think were like eager to show their tattoos right um so it really applies for for the spanish case and and my sense is that in that you know, 1980s spain there is a real kind of uh you know not breathing a sigh of relief was not quite the right word but there's a big kind of like release of energy there's a real vibrant scene very quickly not just of tattooing but of music and of fashion and of film like so what's happening that those first that first tattoo shop where in spain was that it was in the south. In the south. Yes, because um, actually in the south, uh, particularly in Cadiz, there were uh, tattoo shops in the military base, yeah. right? Like related to, again, the military uh, practices. And then it was there that Mao opened the, the first shop. 
And then slowly you start seeing how uh, shops start opening in Barcelona, for example, then Madrid, uh, then I think Bilbao. So it was mainly coastal towns or uh, the main, uh, like uh, Madrid, right? The main city. Yeah. And this is, this is, I mean, 100 years after the first tattoo shop in Britain and 130 odd years after the first tattoo shop in the United States. So yeah. It's kind, kind of amazing how quickly this scene develops it is and if you think about it nowadays uh the tattoo scene in spain is huge we've got really good artists incredible yeah and they are like very well connected right so they travel and we have also many uh, foreign guests so it, it is really incredible to think about how just fast it all developed and 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 you've obviously really spent a lot of your time over the recent years like talking about and to women who've been involved in tattooing almost from those early days, from the 80s or from the 90s. So um, tell us about that. Who, who, are, who, are, who are those women and what, what, what are their stories? And again, I think what I, what I find so interesting about the Spanish case and your research, uh, Julia, is that there's a real, like, over, again, overblown sense in the Anglophone literature, like, oh, they're, you know, oh my God, women are getting tattooed now, shock horror, for a very long, sustained period of time. And there, of course, as we talked about when we talked about Jesse, there have been women in Britain tattooing for a long time. But again, in Spain, it really is kind of new. <laughs> um, but but of course, these women that you've interviewed are 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 being are are coming into and and being part of an industry that, even though it's new in Spain, does have all this cultural baggage that, it's, that it has from its connections to elsewhere and 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 the general social stereotypes about about gender and about tattooing anyway. So. Yeah, like how do women fit into this story and, and what have you found in talking to the people you've been interviewing? Mm -hmm. So I've, I've interviewed 20 people, um, but I was talking to three tattooers, three women who were particularly interesting. Uh, two of them came uh, from abroad. One uh, is Isa, who learned how to tattoo in Amsterdam uh, when she was 15. And she's an amazing character. She's, she is absolutely incredible so we, yeah. we maybe like tell us the overview and then we'll cycle back to them individually <laughs> okay yeah so um it, it was interesting to talk to to the three of them because when i started so, so isa yeah it's isa uh she was known as morbella um like back in the days because she would dress as a vampire <laughs> <laughs> which is also really interesting uh then i talked to uh andrea uh she was born in uh, in england and her father was a tattooer, so she learned the trade because of her family, right? And he came to Spain in the 80s uh, with her husband, and she decided to open a tattoo shop in Valencia in 1984. And then the last one is Mara. She's from Santander, so the north, and uh, she's the only Spanish one. And her story is amazing because she would uh, decide to go to Ibiza, this uh, Balear, like, this island in Baleares, um, she would go there alone. She was a single mom of four kids. And she was just really into uh, craft and art. And then she saw this tattooed man. And um, apparently he had, I think it was a dolphin or a mermaid. And she was amazed. It was, I think, in his belly or his chest. And then she thought, oh, I want to learn how to do that. So her story is wow. quite amazing. And then she, yeah, she like 
sold her van. She had a van and she decided to sell the van just in order to get the money necessary to uh, learn how to tattoo with this uh, Canadian tattooer. Wow. So, yeah. So right, so right at the beginning of this sort of emergence, you've got a, a several really important women involved in the, in the scene, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And they have... Uh, they were really passionate, I think, about tattooing. That's like what they have in common. Then their styles are really different, but um, they were just, yeah, really passionate. And I remember talking to them and realizing how, even though there were obstacles, of course, for them, especially being women in the scene and in the Spanish society, that was still a little yeah. close and a little, yeah, tattooed bodies were, were getting very stigmatized. Um, they were very resilient. Like their stories show how they would just resist, resist in many different ways, yeah. which is, I think, the most important so, thing. So let's talk about them individually then. So, so I cut you off because uh, on Isa, but maybe we can start with her. Like, tell us about her. <laughs> yeah, so Isa uh, Morbella, um, she's, she's just an amazing character. She, she learned how to tattoo in Amsterdam when she was 15. Um, then she kept tattooing and at some point she decided she wanted to learn how to bullfight because uh, <laughs> as she incredible. told me, uh, and, and this is incredible, she just wanted to go to these male dominated professions just to say, oh, look, I can do it as well. And she, so, she's Dutch. She's Dutch. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so she decided to go to Mexico where she learned how to bullfight and she fight it for many years there, there professionally and then uh, she wanted to just you know change environment and she just decided to come to uh, Andalusia the southern region in Spain only because there was bullfighting there as well so she came like mid 80s I think to Andalusia or late 80s and she kept bullfighting for a bit then, was that, I mean, you know, as a vegan, I have to kind of condemn bullfighting generally, but I still think this oh, is. Oh man, it's <laughs> okay. I, still think, I still think this is pr just an amazing badass story. Was was were, were women bull were, were women bullfighting no. in Spain? So she's also this pioneer in bullfighting as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she was just a pioneer in in everything. Yeah, she was really brave, and I remember she she talked to me about bullfighting because uh, people, of course, judge her right judge her as a as a bullfighter but then she told me that it was very different back in the days because it was like a poor people thing so it yeah. was even uh it had connections with anarchism for example mm -hmm. and then of course society started just cancelling bullfighting and that's the moment when she decided to just stop bullfighting and get back into tattooing and so she opened her own shop in Malaga, which is another uh, city from Andalusia, with her partner as well. And yeah, she's been tattooing ever since. She's not uh, in Malaga anymore. Um, she travels now. She's in Amsterdam at the moment. Um, and now she tattoos, I think, in a different way because uh, she enjoys um, just talking to the client. Yeah. So she will complain to me about how Things are different now, that's and people—all <laughs> old, old school terrorists are like that. That's well, all old people are like that. I think that's very standard. Are you speaking from experience, Mark? Well, I am, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like, but 
her her kind of back in the day story back in the day kids were bullfighting kids were bullfighting it's like yeah. you know that's a bit of a different vibe um just before we move on to talking about the other two one thing that struck me is it seems like these women's stories are kind of enmeshed with the feminist revolution in spain from the 80s onwards obviously like as you see like subculture developing and bursting into the mainstream how were women's roles changing in spain in general because as you mentioned, you know, women couldn't smoke, they couldn't have people in their house. How was that changing rapidly? Yeah, and this from is the, the obviously 80s also onwards. the time of, you know, the time of global feminism is, you know, second wave feminism is the 70s anyway. So again, it's this interesting moment where things that are happening elsewhere in Europe and the world happen all of us happen differently in Spain but, but yeah. at the same time. It's, I don't I don't know enough about the history of Spain to know what the cause and effect relationship is, but yeah, like So in for example, just um a fact in 1978 that was a date that the first national conference uh, of like feminist organizations happened in spain which is really late uh but again of course women were already organized before and there was resistance you know even if there was repression of course there were women that were you know discussing things debating uh even fighting especially in the late francoism right um, but yeah, it was only after 78 that society really started to talk about it, to talk about feminism openly. And for example, at universities, we started seeing gender studies as model, um, not before that, of course. Um, so it was also a very quick change, I would say. And I think women were already, you know, like sneaking um, through law and <laughs> repression in their own unique ways, you yeah. know. Uh, before before Franco died. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As, and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting, niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Sanoderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Sanoderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Sanoderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Sanoderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Sanoderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second-skin aftercare bandages. 
Sonoderms tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. So, yeah, so, so um, and it, just the last thing on Issa, she's also a remarkable looking woman right like she 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 she's she photographed a lot there's quite a lot of photos of her um from her over her career um she's got some amazing tattoos as well like can you just maybe describe what she looked like (laughs) yeah she's she's a heavily tattooed woman she's got like neck hands face and as she was telling me her story uh she really liked to get tattooed by friends and fellow tattooers uh she admired and she's got amazing stories for each of her tattoos, I think. Um, so they are like souvenirs from from her travels because she's been also in India, um, in Mexico, as I said. So she's like um, a, a good traveler. And I think I was particularly amazed by three uh, dots in each cheek in her face. Because uh, she, she's a huge fan of Valley Mayers, who's this Australian artist who was also um, a tattooer like at some point. Uh, she tattooed Patti Smith, for example. And this Valley had three dots in each cheek uh, on her face. So she decided to get that tattoo done by a friend, uh, Isa, because she wanted like to homage uh, her, her idol. And what's, what's her own tattooing like? What's her style? So like. she's she's a really good illustrator as well. Uh, she's uh, done, for example, covers for uh, Penguin uh, or for I don't know uh, music bands and and stuff. Her style is very uh, intricate. It's very um, complex. It's got lots of color. It's like I would say similar to traditional, but she's got like a very special take on it. It's really interesting. I recommend people to uh, check her stuff out. I think that's, again, that's really interesting that you, w- w- when you have this tattoo culture sort of coming very quickly in that context, you sort of, you, you get that, I mean, again, that kind of new style, post Ed Hardy, post Spider Web kind of stuff um, without having to go through all the stuff beforehand. It's really, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, so, so, and so who, who was your next, who was your next uh, interviewee? Uh, the next one was uh, Andrea. Uh, she's the English one. Um, she learned because of her father, which is also interesting for me in terms of her, of course, coming from the UK. And who was her father? Uh, Will Hakon. Uh, and he was working, I think, in Jersey Islands for a while. Then he was with the military as well. And she learned, I think, when she was young you know and then she decided to come to Valencia and um, that's in the coast and she opened her studio there with her partner and of course when they opened it was really hard to get like regular clients so they were doing other stuff on the site right yeah. they, like her husband she told me was picking up oranges for example which are like a huge thing in, in Valencia where they while they were also uh, tattooing uh, for the or the first uh, years, you know. Wow. I mean, again, that's exactly what was happening in the 
early days of tattooing in the United States, for example, or you know where um, uh, where tattooers would run photo studios, pubs, as you know, print shops, sign writing, as well as tattooing. You know, in Germany in the 1930s, Christian Warlich ran a tattoo studio slash pub. So again, it's really interesting that these early days, and you haven't got a kind of critical mass of clients, and you're not like Ron Acker showing up in a van, you're trying to have a permanent studio, you've got to figure out how to make that work if you want to be a pro tattooer. That's so interesting. you got to get that side hustle, you know, you got to have something on the side going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's so interesting. And, and she was also kind of connected into the British scene a bit, wasn't she? She knew a lot of those guys. Uh, yeah, I think she, she uh, you know, like uh, had some tattooers from um, abroad as well, visiting the studio. And at some point, she told me that there were 12 tattooers walking at the same time in the studio. Wow. And they also had this magazine. Um, it was, I think, one of the first in, in Spain. She would travel a lot those years. She would go to conventions. So she was, yeah, very well connected. Because that, yeah, that's also a kind of really interesting, kind of um, important moment in general for European tattoo conventions, right? Like Dunstable in Britain and like the Amsterdam Tattoo Convention was very important at that time and a lot of the artists in that period you know the young artists uh, like like Lau Hardy or Alex Binney or um, uh, Hanky Panky they are again building that next generation of networks and it's really interesting that the Spanish artists were very quickly part of that European scene. Yeah exactly she she also knew for example Isabel Varley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So she, she told me some, some stories on her going to conventions, people even recognizing her, like having, she having fans, you know, which is also, yeah. I think, a great sign that she was known and relevant. Yeah. And when you and I were looking through some of the old um, uh, kind of tattoo books from that period, from the late 80s, like particularly the Chris, Chris Rabluski skin shows books. Um, and there are a couple of Spanish people in those in those books and he was largely working in london but he photographed people in germany in holland in the united states on occasion there's even some spanish people in those books right so there's clearly this yeah i was connection. amazed because i thought i told myself okay i had to come all the way to essex you know to find uh, like photos from tattoo culture from the 80s which is quite funny and is is andrea still tattooing she's still working no, not really, but her shop is still open. It's right. called Tatuarte and her son is now uh like the owner or along alongside with her and he does uh Japanese traditional. Amazing, amazing. Um and then who's your, who was your third? My third was Mara. She's the only Spanish yeah. one, like born in, in, in Spain. And yeah, as I said, uh she was interested in arts and crafts. Um, and at some point, yeah, she just saw uh, this tattooed man and she was just amazed by it. And she really just decided to go for it. So she sold her van um, and just, yeah, asked this Canadian guy to teach her how to tattoo. And was that in, in Ibiza? No, she learned in Barcelona. Um, and then I, I, I'm not sure if it was like before or after that she would uh, like start tattooing but um i remember that she told me when she was in ibiza already tattooing um she would just hang her number in clubs mainly yeah. in clubs <laughs> and she would just receive calls like 
3 a.m. in the morning, hey, can I get a tattoo? And then she would like get her stuff, go to the club and yeah, a tattoo there. This for, is like me putting uh, slap stickers for this show on every cistern and every pub that I see. <laughs> did, did, were you surprised? I mean, because um, you obviously like came at this with a huge amount of knowledge having been yourself, you know, you weren't a tattoo, but you'd been a body piercer and you, you had a whole kind of really, a, a, an instinct, I think, a really good instinct about what it was like to be a woman in these industries. But what did you learn or what surprised you from talking to these women, the, the three you've mentioned and, and the tattooed customers that you've interviewed as well? Like what was the process for you of like discovery with the research? I think was what striked me the most was the fact that they were like very resilient that's yeah. that's what i would say because we tend sometimes like even feminists themselves we tend to uh victimize women in yeah. a way or to uh, highlight the fact that they were facing many obstacles and they were suffering and yeah they were not as relevant as their fellow uh tattooers and whereas when i talked to them i realized that they were just really not suffering at all i mean <laughs> of course they would you know get bad looks uh comments uh but that didn't stop them from doing what they wanted to do and i remember isa for for example telling me that um it was easier back in the days to just present yourself as a woman and just say, hey, this is what I want to do. I don't care about what you think. Yeah. Whereas now she was telling me that many times with younger male tattooers, she struggles because they just like, especially now that she's older, they just, yeah, don't take her seriously. Yeah, that's, it's really amazing that, I mean, it's not amazing. It's, um, it's obviously all too sadly routine, but um, if you think about how, highly regarded many of her peers are you know people of her generation are um it, it's 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 not surprising but it's sad it's a sad indictment of our whole cultural conversation that these women who were are able to do what they did because they they were forging this world for themselves they were making space for themselves they didn't have to you know they didn't have there wasn't competition in the same way so they didn't have to deal with that bullshit and they could just be you know they could create something um unencumbered it's 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 sad that these younger I, mean, I imagine that these a lot of these younger people you're talking about are absorbing their histories of tattooing from reading about the united states and britain um because the history of what's happened in spain is so opaque even to people who are probably tattooers in spain right like i i, I get the impression from talking to you um that a lot of a lot of tattoo artists even in spain don't know the history even this recent history right yeah, I've talked to many uh, younger uh, women, women tattooers, and I tend to ask them if they know um, any other, like older uh, woman tattooer. And many of them don't know much, but I think it's mainly because the conversation has been around male tattooers, right? That's very common, but that happens in any male dominated uh, industry or culture. Um, so I think it's it's just important that we talk about them um, and write about them and just remember those stories because I think those first ones need to to be remembered and to be part of the conversation because they were you know going to conventions they were 
just being really brave, just um, creating magazines, uh, opening up studios. Yeah. And in, I, I think that in, in Spain in particular, but in general, uh, we just tend to talk more about male tattooers. Like even when I listen to your podcast, I'm sorry, <laughs> or when I read books, it's mainly male tattooers yeah. that we mm -hmm. uh, discuss about. And not only in terms of um, the, the culture or the tattoos themselves, but just like in general. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, 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 want, you know, I think we all need to do better on that. I mean, I, I was really, we mentioned this in the Jesse episode, but like, a lot one of the reasons why Jessie's so interesting as a female tattooer is not because she's the first person to pick up a tattoo machine who's a woman she's not but because m many of the other women who we do talk about are women who were wives or daughters of tattoo artists and like Jessie was the daughter of a tattoo artist too but she worked she wasn't taught by him really and she worked on her own build, build a reputation separate from him but like many of the women who who whose names we know who were tattooing in the early part of the 20th century in the britain were doing so in the context of like their husband's shops or their or their uncle's shops or their dad's shops or whatever and so yeah and that is again we see this in art history generally too right like when even when we're talking about great female artists like dora Maar or helen helen frankenthaler we we often have to say Oh, Musa Picasso, uh, you know, wife of um, uh, of uh, Jackson Pollock or whatever. You know, like th th there's a there's a horrible yeah patriarchal tendency to do that, and I think it's really good that you're calling us out on that because <laughs> because <laughs> Get it's important. Our ass. But yeah, but also actually, I have to say this as well. I think what's super interesting about the kind of blank slate of Spanish history that you're engaging with is that weirdly, because you there isn't that existing set of narratives that you have to work against necessarily. So you can really write this history, not entirely from scratch, you know, but like you haven't got to kind of say, oh, you just thought it was all men, but actually it's women too. You you can talk about these amazing women without having to, you know, apologize or recontextualize them in an existing set of narratives. Yeah. And I think as well that I'm, I'm going to try and say the word that I say, only say right 50% <laughs> of the time. You don't have the historiographic baggage that comes with talking about, say, tattooing in Britain or in the US or even in other parts of Europe that like there is so much of it that exists already and people will only dig so much further past that whereas like what you're doing now is you are creating I suppose the canon of Spanish tattoo history. I mean that's maybe too much <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah I feel like uh, when I decided to focus on women's experiences right I decided to do so because yeah we tend not to tell their stories or just diminish them so i found like yeah i think there's also something it's not quite the opposite of that but it's also compliment so there's lots of books good books indeed about tattooed women you know like um margot mifflin's books and amelia ostrod's books about tattooed women but they're quite they tend to be quite reductive in a way because they're they're often not taking full account of as you said almost as you said earlier on about um how uh you know women's histories are seen as sort of you know different or separate from men's histories sometimes which you know which they should be but th th i think what i'm trying to say is those books as valuable and important as they are they do tend to kind of hive off women's history in some senses from the broader histories that they exist as part of and i think sometimes people try and do 
gender studies work on tattooing far too and I, i'm not including those two books i've just mentioned in it but there's plenty of other stuff which is like divorced from the historical context and 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 therefore they start off with a really wrong place you know women women work because they believe you know lots of researchers who aren't so attuned to tattoo history who are writing about tattooed women will say well women weren't women weren't getting tattooed until 2005 right because that's what they've read <laughs> in other places and then actually the more complicated history mucks up their theorizing and i think i think as well it's the difference between and i think it goes for a lot of study of tattooing writ large is that like the viewing of the women more as a subject rather than a participant like you, right. you talk about the like all the histories of like tattooed women particularly in participations and freak shows a lot of the history and this is from my own research for the show that we do on the patreon is they're viewed as subjects to be analyzed rather than like they were active participants in a culture yeah. to be understood yeah exactly i'm i was i was thinking about my my own views into into tattooing because i think that's also important i i understand tattooing as a, a corporal practice right because mm. it's it's always a collaboration yeah. it's always an experience it's not only the tattoo itself but what happens before what happens during the session what happens after the session mm. And I think that also changes your approach to tattooing itself or to tattoo history. And in my case, for example, I remember reading many, uh, many articles like uh, academic articles on how uh, women tattoo, uh, get tattooed in a less uh, showy way, for example, especially during the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And then I was thinking, yeah, maybe that's right, but we need to problematize that it's not that like we can just take it for granted because if you think about it if a woman in spain were to get tattooed in the 90s and of course she would like probably choose a place that was a little hidden if you just tell the story like that then it's gonna seem like a much simple thing yeah. but it was actually like complicated it's like if you put it into context and you think about what happened in spain and how women's relations to their own bodies was very uh, shaped by the dictatorship and repression, then you understand much better, right? Yeah, it's like the, it's the flattening of history rather than like looking at it from both an interse intersectional viewpoint, but also from something in, once again, historiographic, in how we understand their role in society and culture of, a partic of the particular culture of Spain at the time. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is why tattoo history, again, what we try and do on the podcast, right? Like, why tattoo history is so important and interesting from this angle. Because if you, as you said, if you just treat it as like, oh, some women got some tattoos in Spain and they're quite similar to the tattoos that were getting done in, um, you know, in Britain, you miss out on all this really important context um, from both directions. You know, there's, there's, there's an overdetermination from one way, there's an overdetermination from the other way. But actually, as you said, the context here is super interesting and even if even though that tattoo, tattooing on women in spain is is has a kind of globalized context that globalized context itself is interesting because that globalized context is what's new in spain right so there's mm -hmm. this new articulation of a particular kind of way of being a young woman and a way of being a embodied subject that is really new in itself and tattooing is a if, if you come at it with a reductive like um you know well tattoos are a mark of resistance or whatever this very reductive way of thinking about it you miss out on all this much more complicated stuff and indeed much more interesting stuff as well yeah, exactly yeah, yeah yeah i mean i think like um 
I know that you you obviously um, are not a historian, uh, or at least you you didn't start off doing a lot of history. Um, you're you're technically a sort of anthropologist methodologically, aren't you? So you're oh the klaxon is, I, is, well, is again. Julia's one of Julia's one of my one, one of, of my the good ones. one of the good ones. But also, <laughs> but, but, but 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 this but this is where my question's leading. Actually, I think what. I think what you found, certainly as you've as you've been trying to make sense of your project at the end, right, is that if you're just trying to ask questions of people and taking them at their word or taking the, as you said, as sort of a straightforward thing, you miss out on a lot of the context, right? So I, I don't know, like how you found that process of um, of of taking what these women have, to- have have told you and you've learned from speaking to so many people comparing what they have to say with the experiences that you've read of other anthropologists who've interviewed women in the same period in the United States where most of this research comes from and then putting it into historical context like how has like contextualizing these conversations and comparing them to the United States and thinking about them in in a historical context like changed how you've dealt with the material yeah i think um it's it's been mainly since i got here to essex that I started thinking in a more historical way, and that's been because of you, Matt. So thank you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I, no, that's not really that's not true. You were <laughs> you you came to me because you wanted to do more of that, not because yeah. you, not because I taught you how to do it. That's you know you were you were already thinking about that before you came, which is Matt, why I asked you. you Matt, the you are the scaffolding, not the I'm building. Not, yeah, I'm not <laughs> even the scaffolding. But thank you for saying so. But I don't think quite think it's true. But, yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, I remember um, when I started, for example, looking at newspapers. That was really interesting, for example, because I could see that there was this uh, interest in Spanish uh, Spanish uh, society before the dictatorship into just starting talking about tattooed bodies and tattooing as a culture, and then how it all stopped, the conversation stopped during the dictatorship, of course, and then it like resurrected. And then I remember I would start just like... Mm, increasing the complexity of my approach um, because I would read those books that I really I really admire. I really admire uh, some of the sources on women and tattoos yeah. in the West. But then I remember thinking that those books don't really ap- apply to the Spanish case or many other cases, right? Even yeah. though Spain is considered a Western country. And then I was like, okay, so what can I do? You know, I need to just put into conversation my findings in terms of uh, the ethnographic data, right? Like my interviews, my uh, my field notes and everything. I need just to put into conversation with first the history of Spain and then those stories that have been told on women and tattooing that are not really like um, correct in a way. So I, um, I like to think about this, this particular story of my grandma who got separated from my uh, grandpa like five years ago. And then um, she told me that she wanted to get a tattoo. <laughs> and I was really happy because um, I know it was partly because of me and my sister being tattooed women. And then she was like, you know what? I'm going to do it now. Now that I'm not with your, with your grandpa, you know, how I'm going to get How old is your grandma? Uh, she's uh, 79 now, or 78. Yeah, but she looks awesome. <laughs> Big up Julia's grandmother. 
<laughs> yeah, so she told me that she wanted to get a tattoo, you know, and uh, we went to the tattoo shop. Uh, it was a friend's owned tattoo shop in my hometown in Granada. And I remember that afternoon when she came out of the tattoo shop and we were walking back home and we were talking and she was like, oh, it was, it was actually not that bad. <laughs> it didn't hurt much. She got like, she, she got like a little Buddha on her hip because her yoga teacher died. And that was like the Buddha that uh, she gave her as a present. So she wanted to just keep it like as, as a souvenir from her. And, and then I remember I was very emotional. I was feeling very emotional. And I have, you know, uh, thought about that moment for a while now. And I understand why I was emotional. She was emotional as well. We were just feeling really great. I remember this huge smile on her face, right? And if you tell that story and you don't know much about what was going on in Spain when she was born or when she was, you know, like growing old, uh, you don't really think about it as something relevant. Whereas if you put it into conversation with what was her childhood, her teenage years, what was her life as a mother, um, her life now that she's recently separated from my grandfather, it is amazing. It turns into a, like this kind of um, little revolution for her gender, for, I don't know, her generation. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think um, I, I'm sad that I can't speak Spanish and read your stuff directly, but um, I'm, I'm super excited to try and read it even, you know, using translation tools because um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there, good work and not so good work about tattooed women, interviewing tattooed women about their experiences, but they, they do tend to be very reductive. And what I love about what you're doing is it isn't reductive. It is, it is really rich and really important and really like, genuinely enlightening in a way that I think a lot, a lot of tattoo scholarship um, sadly isn't. So yeah, thank you for doing all the amazing stuff you're doing. Um, I wonder if I can ask you like a final set of questions just about how this fits in generally with how Spain at the moment, like contemporary Spanish scholarship is think and Spanish society is thinking about the dictatorship. So as I said, we don't get taught much about the history of Spain in the Spanish uh, context at all in Britain. And so, I, uh, but having lived in Germany and, and been a linguist and studied, you know, for example, how Germany post-war and now still is like dealing with deals with culturally and politically its own history, like, how, how in general is the conversation in Spain about the Franco years um, now that people like your grandmother who were young during it are getting older and how does the tattoo history do you think relate to some of those more you know, wider conversations about reckoning with the, the gender histories and the political histories and the, the, the broader histories of Spain? Like, What's that conversation like? Mm, well, uh, sadly, the work that we have been doing with memory in Spain is not really good. We tend not to talk about it enough and even politically or in terms of legislation, we are not doing a great work. Because um, if you think about it, we still have like many streets or even statues, you know, that remember those years and it just makes no sense. And of course there are uh, different governments in different regions that are trying to change the conversation and investigate what happens during those years. But if you think about it, we still have many unidentified bodies in our cities and woods, you know, and they are there 
we don't know who they are. It's really sad. I don't think we're doing a good job in those terms. But I believe that talking about um, specifically tattoo culture is just a good opportunity to try and start opening a conversation also around how repression worked in Spain. Because um, if, if you think about it, it's like very transparent that there was so much uh, repression and prosecution of diversity that it just uh, literally stopped many things from happening. And it's really interesting to think about the fact that it's only after Franco's death that these things start to be visible in society. So I think we could do this with many other things, but tattooing is like a good opportunity because it's like very clear that yeah. it couldn't happen, at least in a commercial level, right? Like, um, I, I remember once having a conversation with a, um, a tattooist uh, from, from Poland and a lot, most of the Eastern Bloc under, under the Soviet Union um, in, East, in East Germany and in Yugoslavia and you know, the whole kind of Soviet sphere of influence as well as the Soviet Union also banned tattooing. Um, and he said something really similar to me that, um, and, and, you know, that, obviously that, and that was again much later. That was like, you know, 1989 and 1980, 1988, 1989. He said the same, similar things happened in, in Poland, for example, after the, after the fall of communism that they all of a sudden had tattoo shops and this subcultural practice like became a really important nexus point for for thinking about the i mean because you know tattooing has this often has a memorial function anyway and the corporeality of fascism and dictatorship and authoritarianism is really important so yeah i i i think um i don't know it strikes me as a really interesting again in a way that isn't true everywhere what you're doing is a really interesting way of thinking about all kinds of other things like what's what what specifically changes and what doesn't change i suppose as well between you know between the the, the franco era and the post-franco era like and and talking to talking to women um now and and and, and talking to i mean how do, you talked to quite a lot of young women as well didn't you who who have tattoos like how 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 are they relating to these histories or are you finding that their that their narratives are a bit flatter no their narratives are really interesting especially because they are like mm, let's say uh, less uh, more open to the european context for yeah. example because they they travel more i've talked to people who has also worked in Canada, for example, for a while, and you see the differences. Like they tell you how, for example, in Canada, um, tattoo shops are much more inclusive. Um, how, uh, for example, harassment there is like um, very well um, uh, controlled, whereas in Spain, this is still a problem. Like we are recently starting this conversation on uh, tat calling, um, on abuse uh, during sessions, tattoo sessions. Those are conversations that we are starting now. Whereas I think in the UK, I've been reading for a while about work from, for example, Alice Snape on these topics. So their stories are very interesting as well and relevant and even though they are young, I think they are very aware of the history and some of them are also related to the punk scene, for example. So they've got stories on that as well. So it's not only about tattooing, it's yeah. about many other subcultures or underground scenes. 
yeah, I, I think that's kind of a perfect way to end it. I'm going to uh, play the outro music of Spanish Bombs, but if you, <laughs> uh, what, what's the uh, Spanish band that did a Spanish language cover of Spanish Bombs? Oh, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> oh, I, I'll, I'll remember it. But uh, if you, that's just a fascinating conversation. I'm kind of like lost for words on what to say. But if you've enjoyed this uh, episode, where Julia, where can people find your work? Where can they find you? Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Julia Amigo, and that's pretty much it. I'm not much more <laughs> into social media these days, so <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, we have a good back catalog that we've been building up. You can hear more on Patreon as well. Your episodes like this early and our bonus content. Uh, you can find us on social media. The links are all down below. And yeah, if remember, if you subscribe to the £15 tier, you get a signed copy of Matt's book shipped to you, sealed with a kiss. Yeah, a, a press of my pillowy skin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, There's just a faint hint of moisturizer on every book. Yeah, slightly greasy. That's how it goes. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Julia. It's been such a pleasure. To, I mean, having you, having you at Essex, you've taught me so much. And... Um, I'm really excited about the work you're doing uh, in a way that I often am not. Uh, I mean, this is like the second episode we've recorded in a row where I've chatted to someone whose work I've been a big fan of. Like mm. when we, we, I don't know which order these are going to go out in, but we record the last episode we recorded was the episode with Anne Austin, which who whose work I also love and who taught me a lot. So it's rare actually that people teach me loads of stuff about tattoo history. Um, and Julia, you've taught me so much and always give me food for thought. So thank you so much. Oh, thank Thanks. you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> That's all from us. Bye.
Sí.